Here's our reading this morning. It comes to us from the poet Sarah Kay from her book, No Matter the Wreckage, and it's a poem titled The First Poem in the Imaginary Book. When I came upon this poem, I immediately thought of seeking for truth, seeking for meaning, seeking for something that resonates with our inner selves. And so here we are from Sarah Kay. If it were me, when the book arrives, I would immediately start scanning pages to find any trace of me. My name, references to my body, my secrets, moments we shared. I would pretend to be horrified if I found evidence of myself. But really, I would pray to find even a single mention. You may do nothing like that. You may not even crack the spine. You may place this book on the bookshelf, or worse, under a stack of papers. You may forget it and re-gift it later, or worse, under a stack of papers, to someone at, or, or worse, to someone as a secret Santa. It will never know, but just in case you are like me, just in case you do still think about the way your hands used to piano key the spine, the way you would whisper spells into my ears when I was napping, the way I slip notes into your jacket pockets. Just in case you wonder if all those winks ever meant anything at all, I will tell you, you do not need to look very hard to find your shadow here. Your fingerprints are on these pages. So many of your footsteps in the snow. Well, here we are again. It's good to be together on this Sunday morning and uh, to see the squares of faces once more. So that poem reminded me of a story, and it was a practice I used to have as a child. Not really a practice, it was just a habit, really. And when I was a child, I used to have this idea. Uh, maybe it was a silly idea, or maybe it was just part of my character. And I wonder if you're like this. That if only I would look hard enough, I could find one book that I needed. One book that would tell me everything that there was to know about life. That I would suddenly find all of the information that I was looking for and all of the answers to all of the questions that I had. Now, meaning for life and everything, not in the way that Douglas Adams said it in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where the meaning of life is 42, but no, a deeper meaning. Meaning that transcended everything and illumined the way. I never quite found that book, but I did keep looking. And in looking, I would go through stacks of books at bookstores and libraries, thumbing through various tomes of variety of authors and spiritual backgrounds and philosophies. And what I discovered is not one single book, of course, right? What I simply discovered were scraps and bits of information that has created a tapestry of who I am and what I believe. I would hope it's that way for everyone. That there isn't just one book, there isn't just one philosophy, one religion. If there's anything we've learned in our world, it's that when people say there is only one way, that's when we get into a lot of trouble. As a reminder, Unitarian Universalism cautions against what we call idolatries of the mind and spirit. I think about this quest often, and I remember one time in particular when I was going through a bookstore, and suddenly there was a book at the very top of a bookshelf. I could barely reach it. I was much younger and shorter than I am today. And it caught my eye at the top of this bookshelf. 
It had a very simple blue cover with clouds all across it. And when I took it down off of the shelf to open up the first few pages, I realized something. I realized it was a book that I had made a mental note about a few years before. A book that I thought, oh, I should buy this. I should get this. This is a book that will show me the way. Now, I didn't have money at the time when I first discovered it. I was much younger. I didn't even have a debit card or credit card. There weren't even cell phones, right, that people carried around everywhere. That's not too long ago, but long enough. But it was a book that stuck with me. And one of the opening lines, uh, I think it was the second section of this book, it caught my eye as it did years ago. And it began like this. Take courage now, and frail mortal though you are, try to understand yourself. Do you think you are someone special, or that you have deserved the Lord's favor? How can your poor heart be so leaden and spiritless that it is not continually aroused by the attraction of God's love and the sound of his voice? Your enemy will suggest that you rest on your laurels, but be on your guard against this treachery of his. Do not be deceived into thinking that you are a holier or better person because of your great calling because you have progressed to the singular way of life. Those lines come from the great Christian mystical book called The Cloud of Unknowing, whose author is still anonymous to this day. It's a book that digs into, as many did during the time it was written, asking questions about what one's goal and focus should be in the spiritual life. The book, of course, is deeply rooted in the Catholic contemplative spirituality. It's a spirituality and language that is still familiar to me, uh, familiar to my family, familiar to my roots, familiar to so many parts of my life, maybe familiar to you as well. And so those opening lines resonated with me, even when the theology might not have, right? Though those words do make some mention of an enemy, it doesn't give it a name in those opening lines. Could it be the devil? I have no idea. Probably, given the context, could it be some other evil force? I don't know that either, right? But what is clear is that I completely understood that in a search for truth and meaning, there are indeed many enemies of the mind, body, and spirit. It doesn't need to be the devil of Christian lore with horns and tail and a pitchfork, right? It need not be a demon from some other religious tradition. It can simply be one's own self or the influences of others, the influences of our culture, the influences of those who would deter you from an open and expansive quest for truth and meaning. Now, I love this book, The Cloud of Unknowing. I think it is a book that certainly touches upon that great mystical tradition where so many religious traditions intersect. Now, I think you know what I mean. I've dug into this before. The mystics of so many traditions often sound like they're coming from the same religion. The books of the mystics, like the Cloud of Unknowing, have a very broad appeal. The Sufis and the mystics of Islam, yes, I think this book would be for them. The Catholic mystics and monks and monasteries and cloisters, the sisters and nuns, yes, this book would be for them. Uh, they wrote it. For Zoroastrians rooted deeply in the mystic traditions of tending their sacred fires, this book would be for them. Zen priests and Chan Buddhists and teachers and those of Tibetan mystery traditions and really any tradition far and wide where one simply wonders and meditates and questions the meaning of everything. 
and feels deep down an expansive connection to life. What we might call religious or spiritual. Yes, this book is for them too. The Cloud of Unknowing didn't become the book that unlocked all the secrets of the universe for me. Indeed, it just became one of many books, right, that holds a special place in my heart. A book that I turn to and look to and think about often. I think about it, those opening mystical lines, in the way that I think of the poetry of Rumi, or even the poetry, histories, and mythical stories of the Bible. I think about it in the way that I think about the mystical stories of Islam, Muhammad, and the night journey climbing the ladder into heaven. I think about it in the way Buddhists often talk about the bodhisattvas and their manifestations in this world, such as Guan Yin, the statue right behind me, pouring out her compassion on the world. I think about whenever there's a story, religious, spiritual, or simply human, and maybe that's all we need to really call it, a human story, that opens up the mind and the heart to wonder, to awe, to discerning our place in this world this life, and this universe. I wonder, what pieces of wisdom or snippets of books or entire books or poems or pieces of music or stories that you've lived or stories that you've told and heard or whatever life has thrown at you or on you, what is it that has inspired you and pushed you to grow? I think it's important for us to answer this question, um, especially because we are a religious community. We're a church, right? Here it is. Sunday morning, we have gathered together. These are the kinds of questions we ask. We're not here for editorials like we find in the newspaper, but we're here for questions for the journey. Questions that may not ever have answers. And so what are the things that have inspired you and moved you and pushed you and helped you grow? Go ahead for a moment. Just think of something, just for a second. Think about what books you would pull off of the shelf. I know I would pull dozens of books, books of poetry, sacred scriptures, the entire Bible, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, and on and on and on. What things would you write down? I know there would be several little quips and quotes and words of wisdom that I would write down. What things do you call up into your mind in your time of need? You often hear about people saying in their time of great stress and discomfort, they began praying for no reason that they knew, right? What would those prayers look like? What would those meditations be? What would you think of in that moment? What are the memories you have of growing up and living your life that have brought you to this moment and inspired you? Were they hurtful memories of religion or helpful memories? Or some other community, friends, family? What has moved you to this point? Now, other than thinking about these things because I have the title Reverend attached to my name, I am still on this type of journey with you, just like you, right? Throughout my time as a minister, I have called myself a Christian. Oh, big surprise. A Buddhist! That's no surprise. Sometimes an earth-centered lover of nature and every now and then a pagan or a Wiccan. I certainly called myself a religious naturalist, a theist, an atheist, and an agnostic. 
I've called myself so many labels, so many things, this and that, but not with flight of fancy, with deep intention and serious questions attached to them. And what I found is that there is never a stationary fixed answer. Today, if you were to ask me, I would say all of the above. But most of all, I'm here in this place, this tradition, Unitarian Universalism. And it inspires me to keep asking, to keep growing, and to keep discerning. All the while, whatever label I happen to be leaning toward one day or the other, I know that I have a tradition, a deep history, a rich history that goes back thousands of years, touching upon communities that have always wondered why, that have questioned, especially when people have said there is one way, a community that has resisted tyrants far and wide and endured, and a community of people who are fellow seekers. And always this invitation to explore spirituality and religion with a gentle heart and an expansive soul. And so with an understanding that there is no one right way, but there are many ways, and we might prefer some ways over the others, of course we do, we have our preferences, right, in our quest for truth and meaning. And yet we are still always invited to grow and to keep seeking. This tradition of ours, Unitarian Universalism, provides that for us. But the word tradition, and this is probably a minor word soapbox, the word tradition betrays who we are, right, as a church community. Yes, we have an expansive, rich, deep history that is rooted in radical Protestantism. It wasn't always radical Protestantism. It, was, it does come out of American Puritanism as well. But yes, we have a tradition that is, going, that is ongoing and with new stories to tell, new myths and legends, new heroes and prophets and saints and sinners, yes. Always an invitation to dig deep and draw from the well that is Unitarian Universalism. The word tradition does make it sound like it's a fixed place, right? But it isn't. We are living and growing. And our participation in this community is informing who and what Unitarian Universalism is and will be. So for this religious movement, this undefinable experiment in what it is to both be church and religion, we do have our principles, eight principles that guide us along the way. And the third principle is very clear. We affirm and promote acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations. Now, it's interesting to note that it doesn't talk about our own spiritual growth immediately. That comes later, of course, with the encouragement to a free and responsible search for truth and meaning in our fourth principle. But even then, it doesn't say I, me. It's very interesting that the third principle begins with acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in community. Now, of course, we can dig into the meanings and we can argue about it and the grammar, the semantics, and all that good stuff with this principle. Because, yes, at the end of the day, it does involve the individual. It involves us. And that is one of my greatest hopes as your minister here, is that you all wholeheartedly and enthusiastically dig into what your spiritual growth is and what it can look like. And this church, first and foremost, should provide those tools, right? It should provide the strategies, the equipment to use um, in that search, everything that we need for spiritual growth. 
Oftentimes, we might wonder exactly what is it we need. And really, you just need yourself. You need an open mind and an open heart. And in many ways, I believe that this is what Unitarian Universalism offers to all of us. The invitation to an open heart and an open mind. The invitation that if you are a Buddhist, maybe tomorrow you'll explore the teachings of Jesus. What does it look like for a Unitarian Universalist Buddhist to say the Lord's Prayer? That if you're a Christian, perhaps you'll dig into the poetry of the Quran or the Hadith, the sayings of Muhammad. That if you come from a Muslim background, you might lean more into understanding the Jewish High Holy Days. What does Sukkot or Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur look like for you? That if you grew up unchurched or non-religious or you identify as an agnostic or atheist, you might let go of your inhibitions once in a while, or more often if that is the case, and feel the ecstatic nature of everything that the mystics invite us into. That if you're a mystic, you might look to the rationalists and the humanists, the atheists and agnostic traditions, and see how they offer deep wells of meaning, too. And if you are indeed a humanist, and that is your preferred way of being and moving through the world, maybe it would do you some good to experience a pagan or Wiccan ritual every now and then. Now, I could keep going like this. You see where I'm going, right? Unitarian Universalism encourages us to have those open minds and hearts and to seek, to keep seeking. Everything else we offer here provides just a sturdier foundation that we can build upon in our journeys. At least it should. But our work is never done. We move into this idea of an open heart and mind in the spiritual search, and let's be clear, I just feel like I have to add this always, right? This openness does not concede to a hateful or divisive spirituality, right? There are ways of being and moving and advocating for spiritual and religious search that are harmful, and many of you have experienced that. But from that openness, from that place, it's no longer about me. It's no longer about you as an individual. We join in community, and that's the simplest mode of being church, community. Right? Sounds so easy. And our attention turns to the journeys of others. The way we care for one another is, of course, yes, it's about casseroles and phone calls and greeting cards and conversations and the chat and Zoom and all that good stuff, right? It's also encouragement along this journey called life. It's sharing freely of your own journey, knowing that judgment is not there for what you discover to be life-affirming and life-giving. Now, I happen to think a church that doesn't talk freely about their spiritual journeys. And I wonder, have you experienced a church like this, right? That, ha that doesn't have this openness and doesn't have this freedom to talk about it. I feel like it means there's a fear of rejection or wrestling with a past where sharing one's journey was a means of controlling others. But not here. Not ever. Because from our own sharing, from encouraging others, we begin to consider... And we're encouraged to consider, what does it look like to encourage spiritual growth as a community, not just as an individual? Sounds easy, right? And I think it might be easier than we think. What does a church look like where almost everyone is having those conversations, be it in small groups, on Sunday morning, or in everything we do? Where every meeting and moment has a spiritual component, 
doesn't have to be a full-on ritual. It could just be lighting a chalice and centering our hearts and minds. What is the spirituality of the board of directors? Many of whom are attending this morning. You're on the spot. And one's in the room with me. <laughs> What's the spiritual journey of gardening? Of cutting tree limbs on our property? Planting a pollinator garden? What's the spiritual conversation to have around the siding being added to this building? To solar panels on our roof? To religious education and exploration? To how we nurture youth and children in this congregation? What's the spiritual conversation around the endowment? The budget? the happy moments and the heated ones, the disagreements that churches inevitably had, and the way we call each other back into relationship again and again. It begins as simply as that, taking notice of the journey in each moment, realizing it's never just about ourselves, right, but all of us, our collective journey. The mystics discovered this in community, and I always think of Thomas Merton on the corner of, was it, 4th and Walnut, right? Fourth and Walnut. I might begin the streets wrong. But on the corner in Louisville, right, he had this awakening that connected him with every single person that morning. And there is a placard there still commemorating that. And he realized that he loved everyone and wanted to see them thrive and grow in that moment. The mystics have discovered this. And as much as many of them, especially the desert fathers and mothers, they're always left out, tried to be hermits and recluses, some of them lived on top of pillars or in caves, they still had a community of hermits and recluses. Maybe we're the lucky ones. We said yes to community, to this place. Which means we said yes for the quest for spiritual growth. For ourselves, for others, and for this place. May it be so. Amen.